I'm really grateful to be here with you once again. And um, it's interesting to me how things connect unexpectedly. So I was working with Pete's dad in Poland this summer in an arts uh, presentation using arts and Christianity. Who would have thought? And then we love coming here too because our dear friends, Den and Pat Kaneen, live here. And it's great that we can share some time with them as well as with you. Um, I do want to uh, continue a little bit out of pace, but I believe in the Holy Spirit. And we will consider then how to walk in the Spirit and live a life in the Spirit and what that means for us. It's really pretty exciting. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father, I worship you for the privilege to be here at Antioch. And I know, Father, that, that this is one morning quickly upon us and quickly it will pass. And yet I pray that there will be things that transpire in our service this morning whereby we will never be the same again. We may long forget where we heard these things, but let your spirit allow these things to rattle around in our minds and hearts and, and, and find a lodging place whereby there will be transformation that will occur. It's not important where we heard them. It's important that we are able to live in, in the experience of sensing the winds of your Holy Spirit filling the sails of our life and leading us in service for you. I know, Father, that what I offer is not much more than crumbs, especially considering the challenges that are on each heart of each person that's here. Who could ever believe that one person could speak and every person with the complexity of need, the complexity of joy, the complexity of sorrow, whatever, that each person could hear something particularly designed for him or her. It's, it's nonsense. And yet there was a time when your son was offered not much more than crumbs, five loaves and two fish, to feed 5,000, and he blessed them and multiplied them, and everybody left satisfied. Would your Holy Spirit please this morning take the crumbs that are offered and let each person hear by virtue of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their lives, hear what you would have each hear that you might glorify your son this morning through each of us. And I ask this in Christ's name, amen. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I, I'm not a fan of trying to reduce complexities to mere formulas, but there should be some things in the Christian life that are transferable. Um, Maybe simple enough that a child could understand, but also complex enough that the greatest of scholars would never plumb the depths of these particular things. And I think this is especially so with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And yet there's much confusion about the Holy Spirit's ministry, and I know this is true in my own experience. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. I went to a, a pretty radical Pentecostal church. Um, the, these people, I love them. I love them deeply. They were well-meaning, good-hearted people. But this inner city church, one person in the whole church had a college degree. They were well-meaning, but there was a lot of misinformation passed around. And I remember hearing that if I went to a movie and Jesus came back, he wouldn't go in the theater to get me. I'd just go straight to hell. I wanted to see Walt Disney's The Shaggy Dog, but didn't know if it was worth risking my eternal destiny to go see and when the neighbor lady, Mrs. Greenlee, came down and asked if my uh, brothers and I could go with her boys to see the shaggy dog, I looked at my mother with ambivalence. I wanted to go on the one hand, scared stiff on the other. And when my mother said we could go, I began to wonder if she really loved me that she'd put my life in such <laughs> eternal peril. 
I was told if I lived a holy and righteous life all my life, but had one bad thought the last second of my life, I'd go straight to hell. And I never quite understood where Jesus factored in that. I didn't know there could be confidence that my sins could be forgiven, that he loved me, that he reconciled me to the Father. Well-meaning people, misinformation. But I was told that if somehow I got the Holy Spirit and had this evidence of speaking in tongues, I would be secure. So, boy, I sought for this with all my heart. I, I remember going to a camp when I was 12 years old, and they invited us to come forward to receive the Holy Spirit. And I was told if I, I needed to put my hands up in the air as like antenna to connect with the Holy Spirit, put my head back so he could come down. And these, again, these were well-meaning. I'm not trying to trash these people. They were well-meaning, but there was a lot of confusion, and there was some misguiding. Somebody said to me, You've got to hold on. You've got to hold on. So I was going like this. I'm 12 years old. I'm trying to do the right things. Then they said, you got to let go. you got to let go. And I go, oh, my heavens. Somebody else said, you got to pray through. I go, what does that mean? If there's ambiguity, it leads to anxiety. Then a guy came and grabbed me and held me with his hands, threw me on the ground. I'm crying. Somebody comes and pulls my hands up perpendicular. I felt like all the blood was going out of my hands. Three hours I'm there trying to do this. And finally, I just said, okay, this is enough. I faked it and got out of there. And then I went for lunch. <laughs> and when I went for lunch, they wouldn't give me lunch because I showed up late for lunch. And I'm going, this is goofy. We had a faith healer come through. And we were susceptible to a lot of this stuff. And I believe in healing. But this faith healer ended up in jail a year later for fraud. And he had people come forward who got healed of all kinds of things I never knew they had. One woman said she walked with a limp all of her life, but her leg was lengthened the night before. And I had known this lady for years. I'd never seen her limp. He had us all walk by on the platform. Well, he shined a flashlight in this lady's mouth so we could see the gold filling God put in her, in her cavity the night before. And I thought, you're kidding. Why didn't he just give her new enamel? It's like walking up and saying, I want you to see the prosthetic device that the amputee grew last night in the healing service. <laughs> and by this time, I'm about 14 or 15, and I just said, okay, I'm out of here. And because I thought I could lose my salvation based on what I did, I thought I had to gain it based on what I did, and I was always in trouble. So I thought, there's no hope for me. I was sad. I went to college. And my older brother was a Christian, and he took me to a meeting, and for the first time in my life, I heard that God loved me unconditionally. I don't know a person who's lived a moment of honest life who doesn't long to be loved by that. And he also told me that I could be forgiven and took me to scriptures and showed me where the scriptures were explicit, that God's forgiveness gives us a bona fide offer of eternal life. And that he would enter into our life as Lord and begin to bring order out of the chaos. And I had plenty of chaos. And I responded to that message and I was so happy. I ended up going to an evangelical Quaker church. Now this was quite a bit different than the running up and down the aisles that I had heard and the praying out loud and all this stuff. This was a Quaker church. And it had places in it where it was quiet. I kind of liked that. I went to a seminary. And the seminary had a New Testament department, the Greek New Testament department. They were cessationists. That means they believed that when the perfect came, partial things like the sign gifts would be done away with. And all of us were to translate 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 from the Greek and come out as cessationists at the other end. 
And they took that from 1 Corinthians 13. It says, yeah, there's gifts of tongues, there's gifts of prophecy, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. And it looks to me like it was eschatological, that when Christ comes in his kingdom. But they said, no, it can't be when Christ comes because the Greek there is ta teleon, the perfect, and it's a neuter. So consequently, it can't be the coming of Christ. It would have to be ha teleos. It would have to be in masculine singular. And I go, but it doesn't fit the context. Something's goofy here. I go to the theology department. They were not cessationists. And I said, how do I make sense of this? And the prof said, well, what if it's referring to the coming of the kingdom? It could be in the neuter. And if the kingdom comes, the king comes with it. I go, bingo, that makes sense of the context. Among the Pentecostals, I became a cessationist. Among the cessationists, I became a charismatic. I believe in the robust ministry of the Holy Spirit. I don't speak in tongues. I'm open to it. I believe the Holy Spirit is active in the world, and he wants to be active in each of our lives. And he desires that. And we need to understand because there's a lot of confusion out there. And I want to see if I can somehow straighten out some of the confusion this morning. And I do it out of my own pilgrimage of my own life trying to understand the text and trying to understand how it works in practical ways worked out in our life. Now, I think that we gain our understanding if we look back at the canonic passage. It's a passage in Philippians chapter 2, very famous theological passage in, in Paul's writing, and also Jesus' teaching in the upper room in John chapter 13 through chapter 17. So if you go to Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be get grasped, but emptied himself. And this word emptied in the Greek is kenosis. And, and what it was, it, it, was a, it was a word that was used to speak of a, of a military leader taking aside his insignias of rank that he might lead his troops into battle and not have a target on him so that the enemies would destroy the leader and then those troops would scatter. So Jesus somehow laid aside his insignias of rank when he became a man. He did not cease being God. But the scriptures are clear. He voluntarily surrendered. The outward manifestation of his glory, turned down the dimmer switch on his glory, turned it up briefly at transfiguration, turned it back down again after. And then there was also the voluntary surrender of the independent use of his divine attributes. Fully God, but only used the divine privilege when the Father said you could use it. Uh, when it says in, in, in uh, the scriptures that he went to Capernaum and he didn't do many miracles there because of their unbelief, it doesn't mean that their unbelief in any way affected his ability to perform miracles. How many of you ever saw Peter Pan, the play? In the play, you've got Tinkerbell who gets blown up by Captain Hook and her little light is about ready to go out and Peter Pan gets up on the stage and says, if you believe in Tinkerbell, cheer. If you believe in Tinkerbell, everybody believes and all of a sudden Tinkerbell's light gets strong and she goes flying off. And, and some people want us to believe that somehow... These people's belief or lack of belief in any way affected Jesus' ability to do miracles among them. It's, it's wrong. Jesus not doing miracles among them was because the Father said, out of their disobedience, I don't want you to do miracles there. He responded to the commands of the Father, voluntarily surrendered. And what we see in Jesus then is not only the perfect sacrifice for our sins, but the perfect example of a person whose will is utterly submitted to the will of the Father. With that in mind, then, 
we begin to understand what we see in the Gospels. 35 times in John's Gospel, we see something along these lines. All that the Father told me to do, that I've said. All that the Father told me to say, that I've said. And we see this Jesus is surrendered to the will of the Father, and he's going to pass on something then to his disciples. It's with this in mind that we finally get to John chapter, uh, the, the upper room discourse. And it's interesting that in John's gospel, one quarter of that book is one night's dinner of Jesus with his disciples. He's on the threshold of deploying them into the world to do his work in the world. And most of that discussion is about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He wanted his disciples to understand this at that particular time. And, and, and so... Jesus washes the disciples' feet in John 13. And he said, what I have done is give you an example that you would do what you've seen me do in serving God and serving others. That you would learn how to say what I have said to you. And, and, and he, he goes on to say in chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there's many mansions. Were it not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come again. And you know the way I'm going. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know the way. And Jesus has that great, great affirming verse in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Philip immediately responds, Jesus, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. He says, have I been with you so long and you haven't seen the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For all that the Father told me to say that I have said, all the Father told me to do that I have done. Now, Jesus did not confuse the persons of the Godhead. As Christians, we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. What does that mean? It's, an, it's a teaching that explains the nature of God. We believe there's one God eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the second person has two natures, human and divine. Some people say, oh, that sounds illogical. One God, three gods? No, we don't believe that. That would be illogical. We believe one God eternally existent in three persons. That's not illogical. Uh, how does it work? Well, let's say you talk to a non-Trinitarian monotheist. Maybe somebody who's Jewish or somebody who's Muslim or somebody who's Jehovah's Witness. I've had these conversations with all those groups. I've even led Muslims to Christ in explaining the doctrine of the Trinity. And so you ask these questions. Question number one, do you believe God's a contingent being or a non-contingent being? Usually they'll ask, what do you mean by contingent? And what we mean by contingent, is there a cause to God? Or is he necessary being independent, always existing? And, and has no needs external to himself. And always the Jew, the Muslim, and the Jehovah's Witness, in my experiences, hundreds of times having these conversations, says we believe he's non-contingent. Second question, do you believe God's a God of love? They say, yes. I say, third, who's the object of his love? And they're reduced to saying we are. And then I say, but if God needs us to fulfill his nature, then God is not a non-contingent being. He's a contingent being. He needs something outside of himself to fulfill his nature. Relational attributes like love in a non-contingent being presuppose that love must be necessary in that being. There must be relationship in God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God sharing the same essence and being 
Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Second person has two natures, human and divine. Jesus did not confuse the ministry of the Father with his own ministry. He did not make himself out to be the Father. He said, you have seen the Father in me because I, in obedience, said what the Father told me to say. I, in obedience, did what the Father told me to do. And you're all the beneficiaries he says to his disciples. And now I'm gonna deploy you into the world to do that very thing. And by the way, when I leave, I won't leave you as orphans, he tells them in the upper room. I will send you another helper. The Greek for another helper, allos parakletos, allos, another of the exact same kind. If I gave you all an orange and then gave you another piece of fruit and it was an apple, that would be another of a different kind, heteros is the Greek word. But if I gave you an orange and then gave you another orange, that would be allos. I'm sending you another exactly like me. Parakletos called alongside to assist you, to empower you, to allow you to be engaged in the ministry of Christ in the world. I will send you another helper. I will not leave you alone. And that helper, the Holy Spirit, he will bring to your mind all that I have told you. He will help you know what to say. He will help you know what to do. Jesus even says to disciples, when things get rough, you may be called before magistrates. Don't worry about what you're going to say at that time. The Holy Spirit will give you words to say at that particular moment, and you can trust him. And by the way, the Holy Spirit's words should always be matched with the scriptures so that there will be no conflict between a prompting of the Holy Spirit and what the Bible already says. I mentioned to you I fell in among evangelical Quakers. It's true. And I I think the Quakers have a good history. They had a good history of social justice. They were concerned about uh, abolition. They were some of the biggest uh, movers and shakers in the abolitionist movement in the early days. They were the ones responsible for prison reform. Elizabeth Fry, great work done by her. Uh, They were responsible for child labor laws and so on. But what happened with the Quakers is they sensed the prompt of the Holy Spirit and engaged, and they had the scriptures to match it. But in time, they said, well, if we get the prompts of the Holy Spirit, we don't need the scriptures. And they went off the rails because all of a sudden, the prompts could mean anything. No, the scriptures prompt, the Holy Spirit's prompts and the scriptures have to be in union. They have to be in sync. This becomes very, very important. And Jesus goes on to say, I'm going to go to the Father. I'm going to send you another helper, and you're going to do greater works than I did. How's that so? If he raised Lazarus from the dead, does that mean we'll empty out cemeteries? Or does he mean something different by greater works? Maybe he means that we who are so incompetent can do anything at all. Um, He says of the woman, the widow, who came into the temple, and all these people were adding their riches into the temple treasury, she just added her might. And Jesus said she gave a greater gift. Maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's greater by virtue of the fact that Jesus was working in Palestine in the days of the incarnation, and now he's deploying believers all over the world, and it'll be greater by by virtue of the dissemination of the work that's being done. He certainly says in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. We want to do things for the kingdom, but somehow what we do for the kingdom is linked to the resource of the Holy Spirit in our life. 
So what does that look like? I think in part it might be helpful if we define terms and it'll bring clarification as to what the Holy Spirit is doing. First off, who is the Holy Spirit? We find out in Scripture when Ananias and Sapphira have tried to rip off the early church in in Acts chapter 5 by virtue of their pretense. Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? A moment later he says, you have not lied to men but to God. Peter equates the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of God as one. One God, eternally existent in three persons. We're talking about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. The third person of the triune God. Christian doctrine teaches that there is one God eternally existent in these three persons. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is a ministry of that third person through the body of Christ, us. I, I, I don't know about you, but have you ever wished that you could have lived in the days of the incarnation of Christ, the historic incarnation, I I would have loved to have been there to hear hear the Sermon on the Mount, to have heard the inflection in Jesus' voice. Did he ever raise an eyebrow when he made a point? Did he smile? Did he ever go up and cup somebody's face in his hand while he was talking to them? I'd have loved to have been there when he fed the 5,000 by breaking five loaves and two fish and 5,000 left satisfied. I'd have loved to have been there as he made leprous skin as smooth as a baby's skin or made the eyes of the blind to see or the lame to walk or cast demons out of those who were horrified by this this horrible experience in their life. I, I would have loved to have been there in the boat with the disciples when Jesus came walking on the water I wonder if I would have done what Peter said when Jesus said, come, would I have gotten out of the boat and walked or would I have huddled with the other disciples scared stiff thinking he was a ghost? I'd have loved to have been there to find out what I would have done. I would not have liked to have been there the day he was crucified. But I would have loved to have been there when the women came back from the tomb and said, he's alive, he's alive. I'd have loved to have been there to hear him give the great commission and to watch him ascend into the heavens. We don't live in that day, but we do live in the day of an incarnation, and it's the incarnation of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, the church, to do his work in the world. You live in that day, and it's an exciting day because there's exciting things that we get to do for the kingdom. Okay, so how does that work then? Holy Spirit is God, third person of the Trinity, What do we do with words like baptism by the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? And and if you come to John the Baptist, he says, I'm going to baptize you with water, but among you stands one the thongs of whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. When he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He makes a distinction. There's a unique baptism Jesus is going to bring. If if you look at this word baptism, and by, by the way, be careful in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a historic rendering. You don't want to take the indicative, what is happening there, and make of it an imperative, a command. If you take the historic books of the Bible, like Second Chronicles or even Esther, and make what happened there what should be typical for all believers, you're going to make a mess of it. We see in the historic books, people are messed up, and they make mistakes, and they misunderstand things, but God is still at work in those historic books. That's what we see. You want good doctrine? Go to the epistles. And in the epistles, Paul says, for we are by one spirit all baptized into one body that is the body of Christ. The the word baptizo literally means to place into. Even Homer in the Odyssey 
talks about the fact that there was a sound and it was a sizzling sound. He says, just like the sound made when the blacksmith dips his hot iron into the water. Greek word, baptizo, places it into the water. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is you're being placed into the body of Christ at the moment of belief. And there's plenty of verses that will indicate this. In Romans 8, 9 through 27, there's several examples. Verse 9, you are in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. When you became a believer, the Holy Spirit entered into your life and placed you in the body of Christ to do the Holy Spirit's incarnate work in the world. Galatians 4, 6, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. There's an identity we have in him and the Holy Spirit has established that identity. That's baptism by the Holy Spirit. It's an aorist tense in the Greek, which means it happens at a point in time. And I would suggest to you, the scriptures indicate the point in time you were baptized by the Holy Spirit and placed in the body of Christ, and the Holy Spirit took residence in your life was the moment you believed in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. You were resourced. Second thing is the filling of the Holy Spirit. What do we mean by that? It's a different verb form. And we heard the passage this morning in Ephesians chapter 5. The filling of the Holy Spirit is something that should be ongoing in our life. It's a real weird uh, tense in the Greek. It's a present, passive, imperative. Present tense means it's ongoing. It should be typical of our lives. Passive, how do you obey a command passively? You have different voices in the Greek text. Uh, Let's say uh, you had shoes that tied, and you tied them. That would be active voice. You did it yourself. So you obey the command actively. A middle voice would be you participate in the action. So I tie one of your shoes and you tie the other one. Passive, you sit back and let somebody else tie your shoes. How do you obey a command passively? Basically, the text says, let this be done to you. Let it be done to you. Stop doing the things that impede the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Normative Christian life is for each of us to be filled with the Spirit. But sometimes we don't feel the power of the Spirit in our life. Sometimes we get off track a little bit. I don't know, maybe you never do, but I sometimes do. It says in Ephesians chapter 4 that sometimes we can quench the Spirit. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that sometimes we can not only quench the Spirit, but we could also uh, grieve the Spirit. Excuse me, we grieve the Spirit in Ephesians 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we can quench the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through chapter 3, verse 3, we find there's three kinds of people. There's the natural man, the person who doesn't know God at all. Spirit's not part of their life. There's the spiritual person, the person who's believed, and the spirit takes residence in that person's life. And then chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, there's what we would call the carnal person or the fleshly person. The person who's a believer, they haven't lost their faith, but they're just not living a triumphant life in Christ. And and this is a person who's gotten off the rails. What do we do when this happens to us? I remember years ago as a new Christian, I I, I was mentored by Campus Crusade for Christ people. And they had this teaching called spiritual breathing. I've since studied the original in the New Testament, and I find it's an extremely helpful, transferable concept, spiritual breathing. 
If you find you're off the rails and you're not living a dynamic Christian life, see if there's something in your life that's just not right. You choose, chose something else over Christ. The, the scriptures say, or the, this concept of spiritual breathing would say, first thing you have to do is exhale. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His forgiveness is not contingent upon our confession. His forgiveness is contingent upon what Jesus did for us at the cross. But our living in the triumph of that is contingent upon our being willing to acknowledge what's going on. The Greek word for confess is homologeo. Homologeo literally means to say the same thing. If a young man or woman goes to seminary and takes a course in preaching, the course is called homiletics. The goal is for that person to say the same thing that the scriptures say when they preach and to get as close as they can to it. Homiletics, when it comes to confession, same word, 1 John 1, 9, means to say the same thing about ourselves that we know God already knows about us. Confession means that we're coming to the place of self-awareness in our own Christian life. We confess. Oh, Lord, I know that attitude I had wasn't good. I confess it to you. Matter of fact, I'm willing to go back and ask forgiveness of the person I had the bad attitude before. Oh, Lord, I know that that thought was not a good thought. I know, Lord, that this was, it was a selfish thing or an envious thing or a covetous thing. I confess it to you. I lay my heart bare before you. And then inhale. Say, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Let it be done to me. Let him take residence in my life. Not residence because he moved in. He did that when I became Christian. But dynamic residence. Empower me. It says in 1 John 4, or excuse me, 1 John 5, 14 and 15, if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in the things we've asked of him, we know we have those requests. You ask him to fill you with your spirit, his Holy Spirit, how do you know he filled you? Because he said he would do it if you asked him, because he said he would do what he promised when he commanded. You can be confident of it. You don't have to have a static emotional experience. You may, you may not. That's not the point. Jesus wants to empower you. You ask to be filled with his spirit. He's empowered you. You go live for him. Okay, so we've got baptism by the spirit. We've got filling of the spirit. Let it be done to you. Third thing is we have the gifts of the spirit. Uh, the scriptures give us lists of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and, 1, and Romans chapter 12. And, and those gifts I would like to suggest to you are not exhaustive. Uh, the first person ever mentioned as being filled with the Spirit and gifted by the Spirit in the, in the Scriptures are Oholiab and Belzeel, the, the two who were given artistic talent to make artistic things for the temple. There's lots of gifts. These are not ex exhaustive lists. But uh, the, the, the question that's maybe ambiguous is, do you get one gift or do you have many gifts? Do you have one gift and you mediate other ministries through that one gift? I, I kind of lean that way, but the scriptures are not exactly clear. Do you have one gift for now and another gift later? The scriptures aren't exactly clear. My guess is that we're given a gift and then we mediate ministry through that gift. I do not have the gift of evangelism. I have it as a high, high value. My gift is encouragement. So I try to mediate my concern for believers by encouraging them to help them be all they can be in Christ. If I see a non-believer, my gift of encouragement is such that I'm prompted that I, I want to have them come to know faith. And I do it out of trying to encourage them. 
Um, I, I, I know people who have the gift of hospitality. I was this summer over in, in uh, 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 Bosnia and Sarajevo, and this pastor is seeing many Muslims come to faith. He says, anybody could lead a Muslim to Christ if they're willing to open the door of their house, their home, and open their refrigerator. And he does his ministry by hospitality. He has the gift of hospitality, so he immediately. Maybe you have the gift of giving. I've had a pastor one time say to me, oh, Jerry, we like the people with the gift of evangelism to do evangelism in our midst. I said, man, I want to come preach at your church so I can tell the people who don't have the gift of giving, they don't have to give anymore. I don't want to go to the church where only those with the gift of mercy are being merciful. All of us are called to participate in all these things, regardless of what your gift is, but we mediate what we do through that particular gifting. Might be leadership. Maybe you're a person who has a gift of leadership and you can organize a big evangelistic outreach. That's great. Most of us don't have that. But we still get to do evangelism one-on-one, interpersonally, as we meet people in our life. And we follow the prompts of the Holy Spirit. And then, besides the gifts of the Spirit, and the Scriptures are clear, you have one. And you have one for the good of the body and for the good of the body's work in the world. But the next thing it says is that there's the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. How does that work? I remember years ago, we had a friend, his name was John Hunter. He was a Brit. And he would come to America and speak. My wife and I got to know him fairly well. And he said one time he was at Westmont College down in Santa Barbara, a Christian college, and his wife, Christine, wanted a cup of tea. So she said to the student who was working behind the counter in the little cafeteria, could we get a cup of tea, please? And he said he, he took, the, guy, the student took a styrofoam cup and turned on the tap water, put his finger in it until it got good and hot. Then he put the cup under the hot water, stopped it, grabbed, he said, what looked like tea bags wrapped in surgical gauze, and started going like this in the hot water and handed her the cup. He said, you Americans don't know how to make tea. He said, if you want to make tea the way the Brits do, you get the kettle rolling, boiling. And then you take a pot and you pour the hot water in the pot and start the kettle boiling again, and you put a tea cozy or a quilt over the pot. While the pot gets hot, you take a tea infuser, you unscrew it, and you put the tea in the tea infuser, you screw it back up, And then you take the pot and you throw that water out. It was just there to get the pot hot. And then you put the tea infuser into the pot and then you put the new rolling boiling water into the the pot. Put the tea cozy on it and something happens mysteriously to that water. As the tea is infused in that water, it no longer looks like water. It no longer smells like water. It no longer tastes like water. The tea is infused. And he says, I think when the Holy Spirit infuses our lives with the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, self-control, that the Holy Spirit's work of infusing the life of Christ into us then prompts us. Now what do we do? Well, you have the Holy Spirit's ministry. It's active in your life. Go follow the prompts. If the prompts tell you to do something contrary to Scripture, it's always the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Follow the prompts, and you're going to start to see remarkable things happen. If you have a flush week, and you know your neighbor's out of work, and they can't pay their electric bill, and you feel the prompt out of your excess to pay their bill, go do that. Follow the prompts. The Holy Spirit gives his prompts economically. You follow the prompts, you'll start getting more. You feel a prompt to share Christ with somebody. 
Follow the prompt. Share Christ. Watch what happens. They may or may not respond, but you may be number five in a process of eight people before they do respond, and you're following the prompts because the guy who's engineering this whole thing has given you the prompt, and he knows you'll be faithful to follow through. And I can't tell you the number of times I found out when I was five or eight out of 12 or 13 people before they come to Christ, but also many times I was following the prompt, and I led that person to Christ. I'll give you some examples. I, I got on an airplane. This was not too long ago. I'd just come back from reading a paper at a theology conference, and I had the seat by the window. And just then, a man comes and sits next to me, and he says, rats, I've got the middle seat. Well, I, I, I don't think I followed the prompt right then, because I could have probably given him my seat by the window, but I stayed in my seat. It was terrible. Just then, the guy comes and sits on the aisle. And he says, Professor Root. And I said, you've got the drop on me. I, I, I don't think I know you. He says, I was at your paper that you read at the theology conference. So he and I are talking like this, and there's a guy in the middle seat. <laughs> I feel the prompt. Talk to him. I said, what's your name? He said, Sean. I said, Sean, forgive us. We were just at a theology conference. We don't mean to talk over you. Please feel free to be a part of this conversation. So we talk for a couple more minutes. I turn to Sean, and I say, Sean, are you a spiritual person? He said, I am. I am. I said, tell me about that. He said, I went and studied with a shaman in Peru once. Well, don't hear something funny like that and think that that's goofy. It may be revealing that there's something going on in his heart, a spiritual hunger. Follow it. Where is it going to take us? And so I said, well, Sean, that's interesting. Tell me about it. How would that come about? I saw an ad. I could go study with a shaman. It was going to be three weeks. I saved up my vacation time. I saved up my money, and I went and did it. I said, and how did that go for you, Sean? He said, it was the worst money I ever spent in my life. <laughs> and then he said, what's in it for you, Jerry? I said, Sean, for me, it's this. I'm overwhelmed that the God of the universe knows me, knows all the mess of my life, and still he loves me unconditionally because his love is not improved by my well-doing nor is it diminished by my poor doing. And also, Sean, I'm overwhelmed that he forgives me, and I have much to be forgiven of. And I don't know a person who's lived a moment of honest life that doesn't realize they're messed up and longs to have things be straightened out in their life. And then he said he'd be willing to come into my life as Lord and bring order out of the chaos. And Sean says to me, that's the most comforting thing I've ever heard in my life. I said, Sean, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to trust Christ right now? He said, none. And he prayed to trust Christ with me on that plane. The guy who was sitting on the aisle over here, he was a grad student at Trinity Seminary working on a doctorate in apologetics. He was used to scaffolding and building up arguments for the faith. He wasn't used to obstetrics. He saw a guy being born again right in front of him that morning. And he turns to this guy and loves on him all the way back to Chicago, starting follow-up as we did with this, with this guy, Sean. It was a lot of fun, but how did it come about? Follow the prompts. Follow the prompts. I don't know how much time we have left. Where is, isn't there a light somewhere or something here? Two, two minutes. Okay, I like to follow the prompts. <laughs> you will get them. You know one place where you might get one? Right here on a Sunday morning. Every Sunday there's somebody who comes into this church who doesn't know Jesus yet. 
and they're looking for something. Matter of fact, if you're one of those people that's here today, don't leave without talking to somebody by you saying, I want to understand this thing a little bit more. But also, if your pastors gave you a seating chart and you had to sit in the same place every Sunday, you would rebel against that. But look at you, you all sit in the same place every Sunday anyway. <laughs> Become pastors of your pew. Watch for people who might come in. Maybe they don't know Christ. Or maybe they're new to the area and they're looking for a church home. Love on them. Follow the prompts. I remember one time I, I was pastoring a church years ago and there was a woman who came from the back and she always sat in the back and she came up to me and said, Pastor, is somebody sitting in my pew? Oh, really? Wow. They don't know the rules. Maybe they're a guest. I said, you could sit behind them and maybe pray for them during the service. And, and, and maybe, maybe afterwards you could go get some soup with them and talk with them. You know what, to her credit, she did. She just never thought about it before. There are a lot of things that we're not thinking about. Pray, Lord, I confess to you anything that might be blocking the process. Fill me with your spirit and help me faithfully follow the prompts as your son did all the father told him to do and said all the father told him to say. It's a lot of fun. If you want to find out more about that fun, We'll be talking more about it tonight. Let's pray. Oh, and before we pray, I want to say this. Um, this morning, there's going to be a time when you can come forward and enter into the tradition of the Christian church throughout its history. You can take bread. In some senses, uh, emblematic and symbolic of Christ offering himself as the bread of life, his life being broken for us his sacrifice for us. You can dip the bread in the juice, symbolic of the blood that he shed to forgive us of our sins. And as, as you sit in your chair, if you don't know Jesus, this is for Christians, but if you're a Christian, you're invited. And if you don't know Jesus, you could just invite Christ into your life and participate in your first communion this morning. Say, Father, I want what you've given me in Jesus, and I accept that by faith, and I want to enter into this relationship with you. Then you come forward then. If you're not walking with Jesus and you know him, then why don't you set it right this morning and say, Lord, I'm going to let this be the moment when I confess to you my sins. Fill me with your spirit, and I want to re-enter and participate in the body of Christ. But as we've talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit this morning, also remember the Holy Spirit has entered your life when you believe. He placed you into the body of Christ. Come forward this morning and re-establish, Lord, I'm all in. I'm yours. As I take the bread and dip it in the juice, I'm not only going to remember what your son did for me, I'm going to remember the high privilege that is mine to participate in your work in the world. So after we pray, as you feel the prompts, feel free to come forward. Let's pray. And there's uh, uh, tables back here and there's tables in the back as well. Let's pray. Father, we worship you for the great gift of your Holy Spirit that you, the God of the universe, in the person of the Holy Spirit, have entered our life and want to deploy us in the world to do your work in the world, that you have trusted this work to such as are as incompetent as we are, and yet those you choose to use. We know you use goofy people, Lord, because it's the only kind of people you have to draw on to use, and we're grateful. And we want to be used of you. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, help us to renew that commitment 
in our own lives and hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.